Um, the scripture for today is John 6, 24 through 40, which Will will actually be reading during his sermon. Before we hear the word of God read and preached, let's pray that he will give us wisdom to hear his word. Jesus, you tell us that you are the bread of life. Feed us with your word this morning and be with Will as he preaches it. Open our hearts and our minds to receive your teaching and encourage us in our belief and faith so that we may never thirst. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, hello, church. I am still Will Downey. Uh, and Matt is still away on his study leave, so he did ask me to step in for him this morning. Um, however, I was in the mountains this past week. I don't know if you've heard. Uh, so rather than trying to rush a sermon um, as a replacement, I opted to uh, take the sermon that I preached when I was going to get ordained um, and to repurpose that for, for your uses. So, if you came here expecting the next riveting episode in the Mark tale, um, I apologize. All right, um, but on the plus side, uh, this sermon that we're going to hear from John 6 does happen chronologically around the same time as where we are in Mark, so it's not a complete bait and switch. Yes. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, you can go to the book of John, chapter 6 and verse 25. And I will be trying to use some untested technology this morning, uh, which may or may not work. And if it doesn't work, then Steve, Steve will do great with our slides. It did not work. Steve, this is all you. <laughs> all right, John 6, starting in verse 24. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not 
to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Do you ever wonder what experiences you would cherish as a parent? Maybe it's taking your kid to the the first baseball game or teaching him how to make an apple pie, teaching her how to drive. Is anyone actually looking forward to that one? Well, for me, before I even knew I wanted to be a parent, I was excited for introducing my children to Star Wars. In fact, a family member of mine got me a Good Father Start With Episode 4 shirt uh, when my first son was born, which is true. Good parents start with Episode 4, so write that down. Um, Last year, it finally happened. Now, I knew I wanted to go big, and so my brother-in-love, Matt, and I were looking into all the different possibilities. We looked into uh, maybe doing a private showing at a movie theater, Um, but there was uh, no go there. They have some legality snags about playing movies um, that they don't currently have the rights to. But then I remembered, I do know a place with a pretty good sound system and a a larger-than-average screen size. (laughs) So... Um, William had an absolute blast. He has been thrilled for anything Star Wars related since then. Uh, And Matt and I have been enjoying every moment sharing our passion with him. Well, almost every moment. There's a couple other slides there too. You see, there's this scene in The Empire Strikes Back. Spoiler alert for like a 50-year-old movie. There's a scene in The Empire Strikes Back when Luke Skywalker has come to Cloud City to rescue his friends from the evil empire and captured Princess Leia sees him coming and yells to him. She says, no, turn back, Luke. It's a trap. Run. And then she's dragged off screen by some stormtroopers. And Luke, he thinks about it for a moment, and then the hero of the story, he keeps proceeding and following them. And it was at that point in the movie that my son, my innocent four-year-old son, responds with, he isn't listening to her just like daddy doesn't listen to mommy. (laughs) And I'm never going to live that down. (laughs) We had to pause the movie because Matt was laughing so hard. (laughs) Now we know that there are two sides to every story. (laughs) And there's at least two speakers in every dialogue, which is obvious. After all, one-sided dialogue is ridiculous. It's oxymoronical even. But it hurts when people miss that. That's one of the reasons that gossip is so hurtful. It's one-sided. I mean, somebody has woven a story of injustice that you have perpetuated against them, conveniently not talking about their own parts in the conflict. Relationships are tough, especially when there are two sinners involved. And when William inadvertently accused me of being a lousy listener to my wife, my first response was indignation. What are you talking about? I'm a great husband, a great listener. You're 40. What do you know? But the kid had no malice in his voice. He wasn't razzing on me, but he was calling balls and strikes like he saw them. His sincere little eyes saw too many times when my wife would say something and I would go and do the exact opposite. 
I do. I ignore the advice and the direction of my wife more than I would care to admit. Uh, more than I should, which is zero times, by the way. Again, if you're taking notes, write that down. Ignore your spouse zero times. Um, it goes just beyond my communication dysfunctions with Jeanette, though. You see, I thought of the one-sided arguments that I win after a person has left the room. It's easy to do. I thought about the way that I gloss over my own role in sarcasm when it escalates a conflict. And then there's my habit of intuiting other people's intentions and motives rather than asking follow-up and clarifying questions. It's not great. And worse is when I realize that the one-sided way that I am prone to approach my conversations with other people in some ways reflects the one-sided ways that I am tempted to use when approaching God. This morning, John 6, 24 to 40, will shine light on the one-sided way that we may be tempted to come to God and also on the Lord's response. John 6, 24 to 40 will remind us that there are two sides to every dialogue, through the lens of the crowd and through the lens of Jesus. You can go to the first formal slide, Steve. A large crowd has come to Jesus looking to have their needs met. And as we learn later in the conversation, their main need was hunger. Jesus fed the 5,000 on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but now it's lunchtime. And I noticed while studying this passage that the crowd of people look pretty great in what they say, so long as you cut out all of the parts where Jesus is talking. Look with me at the text. Verses 24 to 25. This group has embarked on a long journey seeking out Jesus. As someone with a one-minute walk to church, I can't relate. In verse 28, the crowd is being proactive. What must we do to be doing the works of God? I love the heart, guys. In verses 30 to 31, we see them thinking biblically. Deuteronomy 18 <coughs> commands that a prophet of God verify his authenticity. So the crowd reasons that since Moses set a precedent of performing miracles to show that he, he was really from God, Jesus ought to as well. And finally, when they are offered the bread of God, they respond in verse 34 with longing for what Jesus has to offer them. They say, Sir, give us this bread always. And yet, though they seem so eager and so receptive here, at the end of the chapter, we see that many people depart from Jesus disappointed. Maybe they went back to their neighbors, complaining that they had been all in for Jesus. They'd said all the right things, but the man just didn't measure up. Perhaps you yourself have looked into Jesus, but have turned back disappointed. Well, now I've painted a fairly rosy picture of the crowd based on their words alone, but once again... If you cut out, and once again, if you cut out the bits where Jesus is talking from the passage, the crowd looks pretty good, pretty faithful, pretty eager to learn, pretty desirous to be fed, literally and spiritually. They only start looking bad when you consider that talking to God is not a one-sided conversation. And when you remember that this is a dialogue and you put all the red-lettered sections, the parts where Jesus is talking, back into the equation, you see that this half of this conversation is Jesus talking. And the crowd is clearly missing him every single time he says anything. Now, I was convicted when looking at this that my prayer life too often devolves into a one-sided talk. I come to God needy, 
but with all of my own ideas about what my needs are and what God needs to do to meet those needs and fix my problems. And I'll allot just enough time to unload my prayer list on God before the kids wake up and they start bickering, at which time I need to do a a very quick hang-up. That's how we used to hang up phones. Um, But it's okay, because I made sure that I told God everything that I needed to. Well, John 6 is not a one-sided dialogue, and because of that, let's look how the red lettering modifies what's happening in the story. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Next slide. Though the crowd comes to Jesus with their own agenda, he commits to meet them where they are and to reveal the Father. Throughout this passage, Jesus is constantly pointing the crowd to his grace and to his mercy and to his truth. In verses 26 to 27, Jesus confronts them about their misguided motivation. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The crowd hasn't come seeking Jesus, but what he can offer them. And so he tells them that eternal life is a gift that the Son of Man will give to them. But then they latch on to the wrong word of what Jesus said. They latch on to work. Now, they consider themselves to be good law-abiding Jews, and so they wanted to know what works they needed to do to be in good favor with God. And here again, Jesus patiently clarifies. God's grace is not earned. The work of God is not constant human effort. It never was. It's belief. It's faith in him whom God has sent. The work of God is faith in him whom he's sent. Rather than interact with that bombshell of a revelation, the crowd changes the subject. They ask for a sign to verify that Jesus is who he claims to be. They remind him that Moses provided for their needs by giving them manna in the wilderness. Jesus fed the 5,000, and that's amazing, and that was a good start for sure. But Moses fed a whole nation for 40 years out in the wilderness. The way that Jesus responds to that uh, redirect is, is masterful. Jesus guides them to a key mistake in their thinking. Was it Moses who provided for your needs, who gave you the bread, or was that God? And after redirecting them to their true provider, he again points them to their greatest needs. It is not lunch, but life that the Father alone can give to the world. The reason that this passage stung as I was preparing was how much lunch I go to God for and how little life. How much lunch I go to God for and how little life. Now, this is the first place in the passage that I can see that the crowd really interacts with what Jesus has told them. They seem to have heard him. Yes, please, give us this life-giving bread. Give it to us always. And in the final verses of our passage, Jesus lands the plane. He reveals himself to them. He is the bread of life. He is the only one who can meet their needs and the longings of their heart. Anyone who believes in him will no longer hunger, will no longer thirst. He is the one who's doing the will of his Father and giving eternal life to all of those who would come to him. Not coming to him with a multitude of good works, 
but who come to him in faith. Now, despite coming to Jesus with their own agendas, Jesus met the crowd where they were at, and he repeatedly turns them back to the gracious and the loving Father. While I was convicted in my study of this passage about all the times that I too often approach God in a similar way to this crowd that's one-sided, there is a major difference between the crowd and many of us sitting here today. They did not have faith in Jesus. But if you have put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, you do. When the crowd does start listening to what Jesus is telling them, they're offended by him, and they reject him. In verse 66, the Bible tells us that many of Jesus' followers turned back and no longer followed him after this bread of life teaching. And Jesus, leave the 99 to go after the one. That Jesus, the Bible says he lets them go. How can that be? Well, verses 39 to 40 tell us that Jesus knew God's will. He knew God's will was that he would lose nothing of all that God had given him. Jesus knew from the beginning those who would believe in him and those who would not believe in him. That's verse 64. Jesus shared the gospel with every person who would listen. If you are a human being, you deserve to know about God's tremendous love for you and his desire to show you his grace and mercy. But Jesus, knowing who his elect were, lets the unbelieving crowd leave. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then, as with this crowd, Jesus will continually point you back to God's grace and to his truth and to his love. He does this through the Holy Spirit. He does this through his word. He does this through the fellowship of believers meeting together. But if you have faith in Jesus, as he's revealed himself, unlike the crowd that we see, he will never let you go. Jesus will never let you go. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He may leave you to your own devices for a season, but never for good. Even if you, like this knucklehead, may approach God with a less than receptive heart at times, he will never let you go. Now, if you've joined us this morning and you are unsure about what to do with or to believe about Jesus, welcome. I'm so glad that you are here. The barn is a fantastic place to investigate the Christian faith alongside some of the most genuine Christ followers that I've had the pleasure of rubbing shoulders with. And I long for you to come to a full realization that God's love for you is true. That to those whom he calls, it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. If it were not true that Jesus would lose nothing of all that God had given to him, I'd be without hope. But praise God that our eternal destiny is not based on us and our works and our strivings, but on him and his finished work. Praise God that our prayers are not one directional. We come to Jesus with our needs. He both meets us where we are and he points us back to the loving grace of the Father. I believe that no exposition of God's word is complete without application. So I thought long and hard about a good action point that I could send all of us out with. Something that we could do to put God's word into practice in our life. To strengthen our walk with Christ. <laughs> and then the irony of that question set in. 
You see, like the crowd, I want to know what works I must do to please God. Now, certainly there are many things that are commanded in Scripture, which in a different passage it would be entirely appropriate to issue and to challenge you with. But I think from John 6, my application for us today, and the point that I'm going to land on, is this. Whether you come to Jesus in faith, whether you come to Jesus with questions, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. No more and no less. Please join with me in prayer. God, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that you understand our shortcomings, God, and that you are committed to meeting us where we are. God, thank you for never giving up on us, always turning us back to you. God, I, uh, <coughs> I praise you for the, uh, the security that we have in you, um, that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. And I pray that all of us um, come to a fuller realization of that in our lives this week, that we stop striving for your love, but we rest in it. In your good name we pray. Amen.